Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I will now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, highlights from the 2019 American Society of Clinical Oncology or ASCO annual meeting. And today's program is really um, quite a, uh, a marathon to some extent. We have uh, seven speakers addressing different types of cancers that were uh, um, addressed at the conference, and you'll be hearing research updates from them. It is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I just want to let you know that there are lots of you on the call for today from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have, uh, in the United States, but we also have participants from Canada, France, India, Sweden, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. Um, and um, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, you are clearly a group of information seekers. Now, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have the best of the best speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is attending physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris is going to be presenting to you on updates from ASCO 2019 on lung cancer. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thanks, Carolyn, and uh, welcome uh, everyone on the call today. Uh, the ASCO this year was uh, quite a time for uh, new developments, and I'll uh, detail them. Uh, I would like to begin, though, with um, a, a kind of state-of-the-art on uh, diagnosis and treatment of uh, lung cancers, and then to put into per perspective some of the information that was presented at ASCO. Um, I, I think it's very clear now that at the time lung cancer is discovered, uh, it is uh, absolutely critical to get a uh, adequate a biopsy specimen of the suspected tumor. Uh, please remember that there is no way to diagnose cancer other than a, a biopsy of a, a suspected piece of cancerous tissue on an examination by a pathologist. There's no blood test. There is no scan that can diagnose cancer. There has to be a specimen sent to the pathology department. And that pathologist uh, is the one that can give your treatment team uh, absolutely uh, essential information to choose the best treatment for you. So getting an, uh, an adequate specimen to the pathologist to let them work all of their wonders in uh, understanding what kind of cancer uh, your team is dealing with is absolutely vital. Uh, number one is to give the pathologist some tissue that they can look at under the microscope. And for lung cancer, they, they look at it under the microscope and see does it look like the, the different types of lung cancer, the adenocarcinoma, the squamous, or the small cell. There are some rare ones, uh, but those others are the big three. What they then do is they do additional testing of the tumor tissue uh, uh, to look for various proteins. And it's very critical now with lung cancer to look at the protein called pdl one 
uh, and that is a protein that doctors help use to uh, decide uh, the uh, type of immune treatment to give. Uh, and, in, and in addition to those protein tests, what they then do is DNA tests. They have a lot of different names, you know, cell-free DNA, um, uh, next-generation sequencing, genotyping, molecular uh, sequencing. All, all those are various names for the same thing. But there they're looking uh, basically at the DNA to decide what uh, characteristics of lung cancer uh, that your doctor can use to help choose the best therapy for you. But the bottom line there is that every single person at diagnosis needs a biopsy, and it's absolutely critical that that biopsy gives sufficient tissue to the pathologist. And occasionally, when the pathologist doesn't have sufficient tissue to give the docs all the information they need, you do need to do another biopsy. So um, if that should happen to you, uh, I'm sorry about that, uh, but it that the information they need is critical. They're not just checking a box here. So what's the current therapy? If the cancer is localized to the lung, uh, generally surgery is always recommended. Uh, and I, I think what you're going to see more and more of is that something will be given in addition to surgery. Uh, very commonly, uh, people do uh, chemotherapy either before or after surgery. Uh, sometimes people do radiation in addition to surgery. And uh, so, but you may have that recommended to you. So be prepared uh, to even have your surgeon say you're going to need some chemotherapy as well after a successful surgery. Um, the uh, surgery is the leads to the most cures in lung cancer. So if surgery can be done, we always uh, recommend that it can. Sometimes the cancer is localized to the chest, but cannot be completely removed by a surgeon. And if it can't be completely removed. Surgery is not your best option. What is done then is patients receive radiation with uh, uh, chemotherapy, uh, multimodality therapy, they might call it, uh, and, and that is another uh, treatment that can cure the lung cancer. Uh, in 2019, uh, we don't stop there. Uh, in addition to con simultaneous chemotherapy and radiation, people then receive one year of uh, immune treatment, uh, the drug Darvalumab. For patients whose cancer has spread from the lung at the time of diagnosis and spread beyond the chest, uh, we absolutely rely on the pathologist to see if indeed they find a genetic alteration that can lead to a specific therapy. Something like an ALK rearrangement would lead to a therapy like an electinib or a brigantinib. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other uh, genetic uh, changes that lead to specific therapies, usually pills. If you do not find one of these what we call drivers or genetic abnormalities that lead to uh, specific therapy, and in, in all the cases of small cell lung cancer, uh, our therapies include an immunotreatment, uh, a checkpoint inhibitor like uh, uh, pembrolizumab, nivolumab, dravalumab, atezolizumab, uh, almost always chemo, and very often a drug that attacks the blood vessels that feed the cancer, either bevacizumab or ramucirumab. So uh, most patients get a combination of an immune treatment and chemotherapy. Some patients, uh, particularly with the high PD-L1 uh, expression, uh, that test I mentioned that's done on the uh, protein on the uh, cancer cell, sometimes those patients are treated with the uh, immunotherapy alone. W one other development that's happened and, and may sound a little um, uh, counterintuitive uh, that in uh, patients that have cancer that has spread is, is we have discovered that certain cancers spread only to a few places. Uh, and in those cases, it sometimes makes sense to go after those few sites of spread, either by a surgery or more often with radiation. It's a term called oligometastasis. The other thing that happens sometimes is while you're on therapy, 
all the cancer is controlled, but one piece of cancer is not controlled, that going after that one piece that's out of control is something that's very commonly done nowadays as well, something called oligoprogression. In both those cases, you treat the metastasis or the progression with a surgery, a radiation, or an ablation, uh, and then you then continue on the, uh, on the therapy. Um, the, uh, now, now to ASCO. Uh, there were developments in all of these areas uh, at the ASCO meeting this year. Uh, first, for the locally advanced cancers, uh, uh, those that were candidates for surgery, there were two presentations, uh, one from a, a U.S. Uh, interest group, the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium, one from MD Anderson, about giving uh, immunotherapies. And what they found was that patients that had uh, an immunotherapy before their surgery, uh, in many cases, had their cancers substantially shrunk uh, at the, by the time it was removed. And we know that having this shrinkage uh, in the tumor specimen taken out at surgery means that people can expect to live longer uh, and, and have a higher rate of cure. So we're very hopeful about using immunotherapy in this way, uh, and we uh, expect to see that happen more and more. There are many clinical trials doing this right now. So uh, I think the, the message here would be if you are seeing a surgeon, and the surgeon may in addition to recommending surgery, you may consider a clinical trial to give an immunotherapy with their surgery, and I think that's something you should strongly consider. The other piece of information that came out was a, a group of um, investigators looked at uh, various uh, factors in the tumor tissue that, that, despite a complete removal, would say that the cancer is more likely to come back. And what they also discovered, that if indeed you received a chemotherapy program with these so-called high-risk features, you could increase your chance for cure. So again, don't be surprised if your surgeon sends you to a medical oncologist. Despite a complete removal, other treatments may be recommended for you. Um, there's been much research in the area of the epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR. This is a drug osimertinib uh, that is now the standard of care. Uh, most people receive that uh, uh, at the uh, time of diagnosis. But what happens, though, as no matter how successful osimertinib is, uh, usually eventually the cancer finds a way to grow uh, despite it. So what uh, was reported at ASCO this year were, were two trials, uh, then, and others like them have been reported as well. One was adding the, uh, a anti-angiogenesis drug, a drug that attacks blood vessels, to the uh, uh, or a drug called erlotinib or a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that fights CGFR. The other one was adding a standard chemotherapy to the uh, uh, targeted therapies. And in both cases, they found that they could substantially increase the time from cancer recurrence. Again, we knew that we know that cancer comes back despite our best drug. By, by adding chemotherapy or an angiogenesis drug, you can further delay the return of cancer. I think that's a big development. I know many people see the targeted therapies as an alternative to surgery, but this data would suggest that receiving them both will lengthen the time your cancer is controlled, uh, which generally translates into a, a longer and better and more normal life. I think the other very encouraging uh, information that happened, and this is, these are stories that are going to be uh, being uh, played out over the next many years, are, are new drugs. There were at least two drugs for people that have met 
mutations or metamplification, a drug called capmatinib and a drug called tapotinib. There's a drug called U3-1402, which is an antibody and chemo uh, together. Uh, these, this drug was very effective in people that had uh, their cancer grow uh, after osimertinib uh, in, uh, with a uh, EGFR mutation. Um, there is a very uh, difficult target to uh, go after beyond chemotherapy, and that's the RAS. Uh, there is a drug, AMG510, that appeared to be effective for uh, people with certain RAS mutations. Uh, and another antibody chemo uh, linker, linked, uh, an antibody linked to chemo, what they call antibody drug conjugate, uh, that appeared to have activity for MET exon 20, which is a, a, a tough uh, problem uh, where we don't have a good treatment right now. So for KRAS, for MET, for uh, uh, EGFR uh, and for um, meta, uh, EGFR exon 20, a lot of new drugs being developed. So for those uh, places where we need more therapies, uh, more are on the way. So in summary, uh, a lot of encouraging news. Uh, treatments that we have available today can be given uh, in chemotherapy with surgery, uh, chemo with EGFR drugs to improve your chances of living uh, cancer-free and living a more normal life. Uh, and I would be very, very encouraged that the treatments that we have and the ones in the uh, bullpen, so to speak, are going to lead to longer and better lives uh, for people with lung cancers. I encourage you to work with your healthcare team, learn all your options, and be open uh, to uh, taking uh, additional therapies and taking newer therapies because they appear to be leading to uh, breakthroughs that, again, will lead to longer, better, and more normal lives. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was really excellent and a wonderful way to start this whole program today. Um, thank you so much. Um, ex extraordinary. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson, who's going to be addressing updates from ASCO 2019 on colorectal cancer. Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for this opportunity to present some interesting abstracts from the uh, ASCO 2019 meeting. Uh, the first one was entitled The Pooled Analysis of Multicenter Cohort Studies of Post-Surgery Circulating Tumor D DNA in Early-Stage Colorectal Cancer. What we've learned is that tumors can shed their DNA in the bloodstream. And with modern technology, we can detect this DNA from a blood sample, even if it's present in very small amounts. And studies have shown that uh, a measure of circulating uh, tumor DNA can inform us if a person is at potential risk of recurrence after successful surgery. And uh, this is also of great interest in colorectal cancer. So the study that was presented at ASCO looked at 485 patients who had stage 2 or stage 3 colorectal cancer. They all had surgery. 
And these patients came from three different studies and were pooled together, and they were all followed for five years. And they uh, had their circulating tumor DNA collected from their blood somewhere between four and 10 weeks after their surgery. And another component uh, of the study, they actually looked for mutations in the circulating tumor DNA and to see if that was also associated with recurrence. In this study, about 12% of patients actually had circulating tumor DNA uh, after their surgery. And what was important is that the greatest percentage of people who had circulating tumor DNA were noted to have uh, the greater number of lymph nodes that were taken from the surgery that actually contained tumor cells. And we know by tumor staging that the more lymph nodes you have, there is the greater risk of uh, recurrence. And what we hope is by giving chemotherapy after surgery, we can reduce this recurrence. So I don't think it's a surprise that there was a higher percentage of people who had the circulating tumor DNA. It also noted that the individuals who had the greater uh, number of mutations in their circulating tumor DNA also had a higher risk of recurrence. And what was also shown, if you had circulating tumor DNA, that the higher percentage of people were more likely to develop recurrent disease if if they uh, had the uh, circulating tumor DNA. So basically, this trial showed that this was certainly feasible, that we can evaluate circulating tumor DNA, and um, that uh, it does appear to be a very sensitive way to detect what we call minimal residual disease at distant sites. And uh, as we know, we, we try to give chemotherapy to people after surgery because there is a risk of residual disease, and, and the hope is that the chemotherapy will be effective in eliminating the uh, circulating uh, tumor cells. And this now is an area of intense research, and I think there's a very good chance with further clinical trial data that we will eventually routinely evaluate people for their circulating tumor DNA. Now, the second abstract of interest was called a prospective pooled analysis of four randomized trials investigating the duration of adjuvant oxaliplatin-based therapy for either three or six months for those individuals with high-risk stage two colon cancer. Now, we, we do know that six months of oxaliplatin-based treatment uh, is a standard of care for people who've had surgery for stage three colon cancer. And it is also widely used for people who have what we refer to as high-risk stage two colon cancer. And the stage two colon cancer people are those who do not have 
positive lymph nodes for cancer uh, evaluated at the time of their surgery. And high risk uh, generally refers to people, for example, who have large, more invasive tumors in the colon. There are those who have a blood vessel or what we call perineural uh, presence of tumor cells. And uh, uh, there's been long-term interest whether these higher-risk individuals uh, benefit from uh, uh, chemotherapy after surgery, and many people routinely have such. Now, we also know that there can be side effects from six months of oxaliplatin, particularly peripheral neuropathy. And so if we can decrease the duration of treatment, the hope is that there will also be less toxicity, but people will have the same benefit of therapy. So this particular trial was known as the IDEA collaboration. It actually was six international trials where the design was to pool the results together and to evaluate stage three and stage two patients uh, to receive either three months or six months of oxaliplatin-based therapy. The overall trial had about 16,000 patients. This particular analysis looked at the high-risk stage 2 patients, and these patients were included in four out of the six uh, studies. These particular trials uh, were done in uh, Europe predominantly, and the design was to see if three months of therapy uh, was non-inferior compared to six months, and patients could have received either standard Folfox, which is oxaliplatin, and infusional 5-FU, or Kbox, which is oxaliplatin with the oral drug uh, capecitabine. And so in this study, uh, there were over 3,000 people who had high-risk stage 2 disease, and the higher percentage of people actually received the K-box, the oral uh, fluoroperimidine. And what was shown, as expected, those who got three months of therapy had significantly less serious toxicity, in particular, less peripheral neuropathy. And so this was consistent with the earlier observations for the stage 3 people who got three months and who also had less neurotoxicity. Um, And what it seems to show is that there are people who, if they receive in particular the K-box, who may be safely treated with three months of therapy, Uh, but not all. And therefore, from these results, just as we now do with stage 3 colon cancer, it's important for stage 2 people who might be at higher risk for recurrence to talk about whether three months or six months of treatment is most appropriate for their situation. Now, to move on to a third abstract, this was entitled FOXTROT, an international randomized control trial in 1,052 patients evaluating neoadjuvant chemotherapy for colon cancer. 
the concept of neoadjuvant therapy, which means giving treatment before planned surgery, is um, a concept that is uh, well recognized. In fact, we routinely use neoadjuvant treatment for people with rectal cancer. However, for colon cancer, this approach is far uh, less uh, utilized. Uh, most patients have surgery first, and then re they receive so-called adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery, and that's what I just talked about with the IDEA trial, the three versus six months of post-op therapy. But in this particular trial presented at uh, ASCO, uh, they looked at people uh, who had uh, plans for surgery, and it was randomized. So uh, one group received standard full-fox chemotherapy for six, six weeks. They then went to surgery, and then after surgery received an additional eight week, 18 weeks of uh, full-fox. Uh, this was compared to the control group, which was the very standard approach of giving surgery followed by 24 weeks of Folfox, or in other words, six months of adjuvant therapy, which is uh, uh, the standard. Uh, now, uh, there, there were individuals who, rather than Folfox, could also have received uh, KPOX. And this trial included, uh, as I mentioned in the title, 1,052 patients, and these were patients who were treated in 85 uh, centers in the United Kingdom, Denmark, and Sweden. And what this showed is that the neoadjuvant therapy was very well tolerated, it was safe, and there was no increase in perioperative morbidity. However, interestingly, there was a trend toward fewer serious postoperative complications by giving uh, this approach. It also showed that about 59% of the people who received the neoadjuvant therapy actually had shrinkage of their tumors, and in some cases, uh, the tumors were non-detectable at the time of surgery, showing uh, a really impressive result from the chemotherapy. And actually, we know from rectal cancer that Folfox can significantly uh, reduce tumor size. It's a concept called uh, downstaging. And it was shown that uh, with the neoadjuvant therapy, in this case for colon cancer, there was significant downstaging. And in fact, uh, more people who had the neoadjuvant therapy were able to have complete resection of their tumors. There was also at least a trend in decreasing the risk of recurrence with the neoadjuvant therapy. And so this is uh, a very interesting approach for colon cancer. And uh, what we're going to need to see is longer follow-up for these individuals who had this approach to look at the, the outcomes over time. And uh, this is something that I think we should evaluate further in future trials to see 
if there uh, clearly is a significant advantage for this approach, uh, much as what we have seen in rectal cancer. The fourth uh, study I want to talk about to, to conclude um, is entitled Update Results of Tribe 2, uh, which is a phase three randomized uh, strategy study in first and second line treatment for people with unresectable uh, metastatic colorectal cancer. So unlike the trials I, I had been addressing, these are individuals who have more advanced disease and uh, would not ordinarily be considered uh, for surgery. So the the phase three study was referred to as the tribe study um, looked at uh, the three chemotherapy drug combination of oxaliplatin, arenatecan, and 5-FU, which is referred to as uh, fulfoxiri, combined with the biological drug bevacizumab, and compared that to a very standard two-chemotherapy drug regimen of the 5-FU and arenatecan uh, with the uh, bevacizumab. And this was designed to see if there appeared to be an advantage, uh, particularly in response and overall outcome. Uh, and it, it did appear uh, that the three drugs did produce um, uh, improved uh, benefit. So based on that information, um, it was decided to conduct this trial which looked at the three drugs, Fulfoxiri, but also to see if that had an advantage rather than what we more typically do is to give, for example, Fulfox, the, the two drugs, with or without bevacizumab. And then if patients show sign of progression, we then switch to uh, Fulfiri. So what what is called TRIBE-2 uh, in terms of this analysis was a phase three trial. And so it, it looked at uh, an arm where people got Fulfox and Bevacizumab, and then if they had disease progression, they then received Fulfiri and Bevacizumab, which is, uh, as I mentioned, a very standard approach. And this was compared to giving the Fulfoxiri, the three chemotherapy drugs with bevacizumab, and then if they progressed to reintroduce the exact same uh, three-drug combination with uh, arenatecan. And this trial had 679 patients who were enrolled uh, from 58 uh institutions in Italy. And this trial was also important because it included people who were perhaps at higher risk for recurrence uh, or progression, I should say, of their disease. And so uh, this included people with right-sided tumors, about a third of people had right-sided tumors. The vast majority uh, presented uh, at the time of their cancer diagnosis with metastatic disease, 
about two-thirds had RAS mutations and about 10% uh, BRAF mutations. And these are all uh, observations that uh, can predict perhaps uh, uh, earlier progression. And what this uh, TRIBE 2 study did show is that um, by giving the three drugs with bevacizumab, uh, there was a significant improvement in overall outcome, uh, including uh, response. Um, and this was true even for those who had those features, as I mentioned, like RAS mutations and BRAF mutations, where we worry more that uh, progression may occur sooner. So certainly for patients with uh, metastatic colorectal cancer, there needs to be a discussion now as to which approach would appear to be most appropriate for an individual. And it certainly could include uh, beginning treatment uh, with the three drugs plus uh, bevacizumab. Uh, this three-drug regimen does have the risk of more toxicities, so that would be an important part of the discussion. And so uh, with this, I would like to conclude, and thank you for your attention, and uh, I'll turn this back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really excellent and incredibly comprehensive and just really outstanding. So thank you so much. And I, I know it's very helpful to people on the phone. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Um, Irene O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is the Winthrop Rockefeller Chair in Medical Oncology, Section Head Hepatopancreatic Biliary Neuroendocrine Cancers, Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Associate Director David M. Rubenstein, Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Attending Physician, Member Memorial Sun Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical Group. And Dr. O'Reilly is going to be presenting updates from ASCO 2019 on pancreatic cancer. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you uh, for joining this call. So I would say it was an exciting year in pancreas cancer, and uh, pancreas cancer had an important distinction for the first time that it was designated as one of the plenary presentations at the American Society of Clinical Oncology in 2019. So that, that hasn't happened uh, thus far in this disease, so uh, that, that was nice to see. And just going to walk uh, through uh, this particular presentation and then touch on two other topics that provide some new information in the treatment of pancreas cancer. So to, to set the scene here, just a little bit of background about the genetics of pancreas cancer. If we take 100 uh, people diagnosed with this disease, sort of unselected by age, uh, race, ethnicity, et cetera, about 7 to 8% will have uh, an underlying genetic mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes that have caused their pancreas cancer. And these genes are known for their association with breast and ovary cancer, but increasingly they're, they're recognized as being important in terms of the development of pancreas cancer and in terms of treatment of pancreas cancer. 
So for an individual diagnosed with uh, pancreas cancer, which is spread beyond the primary area, the current uh, main treatments are combination chemotherapy uh, programs, uh, typically either fulfirinox, which is a combination of a drug, 5-FU, oxaliplatin, a vitamin, and uh, uh, arenatecan or uh, gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, and both of those have been shown to be able to shrink the cancer, control the disease, and extend life. So in this uh, important study called the POLAR trial that was uh, presented this year, uh, this study looked at the subset of individuals who had a germline BRCA mutation. So that means they were uh, born with this mutation and their pancreas cancer uh, resulted as a consequence of, of that mutation. So in this study, uh, patients uh, were screened and those who had a, an identified mutation were allocated after receiving a period of platinum-based treatment. So typically that was fulfirinox or could have included cisplatin-based therapy. They had to have at least four months of that treatment and then were uh, randomized. So flip of a coin uh, determined whether or not they went on to receive uh, a laparib, which is a class, belongs to a class of drugs called a PARP inhibitor, or a uh, placebo, so a, a sugar-coated uh, non-active uh, medication. And in this study, uh, people who received uh, the PARP inhibitor had uh, ongoing uh, cancer control and uh, ongoing ability to shrink the cancer uh, for an extended period of time over those who received uh, the placebo. So that, that's an important observation, and uh, the sort of take-home messages of this study are that we need to know who these people are in terms of uh, whether or not a BRCA mutation is present uh, for treatment purposes, but also for potential identification of healthy family members that might be at risk for developing other BRCA-related cancers. And we've mentioned breast and ovary, and uh, pancreas, of course, and, and potentially prostate, but there are a range of other malignancies beyond those. And the fact that uh, that mutation offers the uh, potential for benefit uh, from a PARP inhibitor. And PARP inhibitors are oral uh, drugs. They're reasonably well tolerated, have uh, associated uh, fatigue, uh, blood count uh, suppression in terms of anemia, and sometimes uh, platelets or clotting factors uh, being low and uh, can maintain cancer control at a, overall, I would say for a lot of individuals, a preserved quality of life over intravenous uh, treatment and all uh, that that uh, implies, meaning coming to the clinic uh, on a frequent basis, being hooked up to, to a pump, etc. So the, this uh, PARP inhibitor, uh, Alaparib, is not uh, yet licensed in this setting, but we're hoping uh, that will happen as a consequence of these results. And the other sort of key message is uh, the recognition now uh, from this study and from uh, several other large data sets over the last couple of years that it's very important to uh, recommend uh, genetic testing for people diagnosed with, with pancreas cancer. Uh, we need uh, to identify uh, these underlying uh, mutations. 
uh, in their genetic makeup uh, because of the treatment implication and because of uh, the family uh, potential implications. So that's now in uh, national guidelines and it's uh, usually a paired testing that's done with uh, tumor-based testing and, and my colleagues uh, before me on this call have alluded to the importance of that in the treatment of lung cancer and in the treatment of colorectal cancer and now we're uh, endorsing uh, this recommendation in a third cancer and in fact this applies to many other uh, malignancies as well uh, but genetic testing in terms of blood-based family lineage uh, testing and tumor-based testing uh, opens as many doors as possible for a subset of patients uh, with these uh, mutations. So moving to the second uh, topic was looking at treatment after surgery for pancreas cancer. That's called adjuvant therapy. And about 15% of people with pancreas cancer have localized disease and are in a position to undergo an operation. And, and Two main standards in this setting are the combination of fulfirinox, although it's a relatively intense regimen associated with, with toxicity uh, for uh, a number of patients, or a slightly less intense combination of medications uh, with gemcitabine and an oral medication called capsidabine. So a, a natural uh, trial to, uh, to be evaluated in, in the postoperative setting was looking at gemcitabine and napaclitaxel. We've discussed that this is approved in metastatic disease, so a question, is it uh, a good choice in the postoperative setting? So a large study, over 800 people uh, enrolled, were allocated to either gemcitabine and napaclitaxel or gemcitabine on its own. And um, perhaps to, to, to many people's surprise, this uh, was not a positive study, at least in terms of the uh, period of time that uh, people uh, were living without return of their cancer. It was not statistically better for the combination, although the combination did result overall in people living some, somewhat longer. Having said that, the, the what we call the overall survival is not fully mature yet, and we'll sort of have to wait for those data to see where this uh, sort of pans out. So right now, uh, that particular combination of gemcitabine and apactitaxel, uh, for the most part, will not be routinely used in the postoperative uh, setting. And the third area of interest from this year's ASCO meeting was looking at a supportive approach in, in terms of treatment of pancreas cancer. And we know pancreas cancer is associated with high propensity for, for blood clots, uh, deep venous thrombosis or clots in the legs or pulmonary emboli, clots in the lung. And up to about 40 to 50% of people over the course of the disease will develop a, a clot, and, and these uh, clots of thrombosis can have implications uh, for, for the individual. So a large uh, study looked at an oral medication called rivaroxaban and compared this to uh, placebo uh, for individuals with a, a new diagnosis of pancreas cancer who were starting initial therapy. They had to have disease which had spread beyond the local area was not operable. And while people were on this oral medication, rivaroxaban, their uh, rate of clotting was significantly reduced. And importantly, uh, the risk of, of major bleeding was not higher than, than placebo. And as you can imagine, that's uh, uh, an important thing that we have to make sure is not a concern when uh, individuals are recommended uh, blood thinners. So starting a 
a blood thinner at the time of treatment of metastatic disease is not standard of care yet, but these data, uh, they have some limitations uh, and are currently undergoing a discussion as to whether we do need to think about this on, on a more uh, routine basis. So summing up here for pancreas cancer in 2019, uh, genetic testing uh, for all uh, with a focus on, on bracket testing uh, because of the potential use of platinum drugs and PARP inhibitors. Postoperative treatment uh, isn't changing in 2019 and we're waiting for uh, further survival uh, data on uh, a combination that's widely used in the metastatic disease spread setting and uh, oral blood thinners uh, may be becoming a more routine part of, uh, of treatment in conjunction with starting uh, therapy uh, for, for the cancer. So more to come on that last uh, topic. So thank you all very much uh, for listening, and I'll, I'll pass it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Riley. That was really outstanding and a lot of a lot of important information and the fact that this was a plenary at ASCO is so important for the pancreatic cancer community. So thank you so much. Um, thanks. Excellent presentation. Our next speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Uh, Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program, Associate Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin is going to be uh, addressing updates from ASCO 2019 on lymphoma. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. I uh, am happy to have an invitation to share um, recent developments on lymphoma. There are about 70 different kinds of lymphoma, and uh, obviously I will try to focus it on um, just some of the most common ones, but uh, every year we do learn more and more about some of the uh, rarer lymphomas, uh, and unfortunately, we just don't have time to get to everything. Additionally, there are three big hematology meetings this past summer, or three. In, in addition to ASCO, there was a European Hematology Association and another uh, international conference on uh, malignant lymphoma uh, in Switzerland. And so I'll uh, try to add in a few details from those conversations as well. So firstly, I'll, I'll focus on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common lymphoma seen worldwide. It's a lymphoma that we treat uh, with chemotherapy, namely our CHOP, with the intention of curing the lymphoma uh, completely. By and large, this um, approach has been uh, successful uh, in the majority of people with lymphoma, but unfortunately, there is still room for improvement. Historically, the way that we have tried to improve on our CHOP chemotherapy is by uh, adding drugs to our CHOP chemotherapy. Uh, for, uh, for several years, there were attempts to add chemotherapy drugs to our CHOP. Um, those approaches were not necessarily successful for the past five to ten years. We've seen a number of trials conducted with uh, non-chemotherapy target or, or immunotherapy drugs added to our CHOP. And this summer, we saw the results of two of those clinical trials presented. They were, there was a phase three uh, industry-sponsored uh, randomized phase three trial called the ROBUST trial, and another randomized phase two trial from ECOG, the Eastern Cooperative, Eastern, uh, Cooperative Oncology Group. In both of those trials, the uh, question was, what is the benefit, uh, a risk or benefit of the addition of lenalidomide? 
to RCHOP. Lenalidomide is an oral anti-cancer drug. It's approved by the FDA for treatment of multiple myeloma, mantle cell lymphoma, and a kind of myelodysplastic syndrome. Um, it is uh, has it has demonstrated some clear anti-lymphoma activity in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the past, and so the question was if it works in people with previously treated large cell lymphoma, could we add it to RCHOP and hopefully make the RCHOP work better? Certainly, uh, early single-arm trials suggested that that might be true. Unfortunately, in this case, it looks as though the addition of lenalidomide to RCHOP in neither of these trials produced the outcomes that we were uh, expecting to hope for, or expecting, uh, and certainly all hoping for. Um, this was somewhat uh, surprising, um, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's an important result. And really, I think if anything, it um, you know highlights the fact that this is still a lymphoma where we need to do better. And uh, one potential way where we might uh, improve on outcomes is instead of adding drugs to RCHOP, why don't we try to uh, add therapy before RCHOP or after RCHOP uh, since the addition to RCHOP has not uh, historically been um, so successful for us. And that leads to the second trial, which was a trial led out of MD Anderson by Jason Weston called the SMART START trial. He called it the SMART START trial. And there, in that trial, they used uh, lenalidomide plus another oral anti-cancer drug called ibrutinib, which is a, a targeted drug. It inhibits an enzyme called uh, brutum's tyrosine kinase, uh, plus rituximab, a biological or immunotherapy drug. So the combination of these two oral drugs plus rituximab was given for uh, two cycles, that's two treatments uh, prior to RCHOP. And in fact, those two treatments of this rituximab lenalidomide agrutinib therapy resulted in a complete response rate in almost 40% of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. They subsequently all went on to receive RCHOP. Actually, there were two people who did not receive RCHOP. One person refused it, and, and 18 months later, he's uh, still in a complete remission after those two doses, which is uh, quite fascinating. And I think although... Um, it's too early to say whether or not it's worthwhile to use these drugs routinely before our chop based on a, a relatively small trial. What it does do is it um, provides us with an interesting uh, story that we can say, well, it does not appear to be risky to try promising new drugs before our chop. And uh, I think we will see uh, more novel study designs in the future uh, with uh, new promising drugs given uh, not just in addition to chemotherapy, but potentially before chemotherapy where they might, particularly immunotherapy drugs, might have a better chance of working. The next study in diffuse RGB cell lymphoma that I'll talk about is an update on the ZUMA2 trial. The ZUMA2 trial has been uh, published. It was a, um, I mean, it was a ZUMA1 uh, trial. Actually. So it's a study that looks at uh, what are called chimeric antigen receptor uh, T-cells, chimeric antigen receptor T-cells are basically uh, T-cells taken out of a person with lymphoma, uh, immune system cells that are then uh, genetically re-engineered through a special process and injected back into that person. Those T-cells then uh, travel around the body looking for lymphoma and killing it. This is a treatment that was approved by the FDA a little over a year ago. 
and um, has been shown to be surprisingly active in people who have effectively a very aggressive lymphoma that uh, in many cases would not otherwise be considered curable. Uh, in most clinical trials, what we found is that the population of patients that participate are not representative of the real population that exists in society. They tend to be younger and healthier. And we have learned now through a series of um, observational studies done in clinics around the world, as well as a subset analysis now of this uh, Zuma trial, that uh, older patients and well as well may benefit from CAR T cells. So in this trial, they looked at the outcomes specifically of patients over age 65, who are the minority of patients in the trial, but are the minor majority of patients with diffuse IgB cell lymphoma. And these patients had essentially identical outcomes in terms of benefit with really very little difference in terms of side effects, suggesting that um, in real life, uh, older patients should not be denied access to this exciting new therapy. Now I'll move on to follicular lymphoma. Follicular lymphoma is what we call an indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's the most common indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that we see in North America and Western Europe. Um, the treatment of follicular lymphoma historically has been based primarily on uh, chemotherapy that is uh, given for some period of time. Eventually, the lymphoma comes back, chemotherapy is repeated, and the majority of people will continue to go on like this um, without any uh, significant detriment to their uh, longevity, but obviously the chemotherapy has uh, its impact on, on life and, and uh, quality of life. And so one of the questions has been, can we um, substitute other medications instead of chemotherapy? And again, lenalidomide comes out here. It's approved for uh, multiple myeloma, as I mentioned, and mantle cell lymphoma. We've known for a, a decade that it's ha active in follicular lymphoma and two trials were presented this uh, summer. One of them, the MAGNIFY trial, which was a randomized phase three trial that looked at uh, the combination of lenalidomide plus rituximab for one year and then randomized patients to ongoing therapy with that regimen versus just rituximab by itself. The other was the AUGMENT trial, which was just one year of uh, lenalidomide plus rituximab. Data from both of those trials were presented this summer and again, uh, demonstrated that that combination, lenalidomide plus rituximab, and people with previously treated uh, follicular lymphoma was, uh, in fact, quite active, was clearly better than a single-agent rituximab on its own. And uh, I think the takeaway from those two large trials now are that uh, in patients who might otherwise be treated with single-agent rituximab, uh, lenalidomide should probably be... Um, uh, added to that. Uh, and in fact, in patients with high-risk follicular lymphoma who might otherwise be uh, considered for chemotherapy, it looks as though uh, that regimen is, a, is an attractive uh, substitute. Mantle cell lymphoma is a slightly less common non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Uh, probably only about 5,000 people uh, or less uh, or fewer are, are diagnosed with mantle cell lymphoma every year in the United States. But it is a uh, historically, it has been a challenging lymphoma to uh, treat. Fortunately, over the past five years, the um, oral anti-cancer drugs uh, 
again, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, these are the oral inhibitors of brutums, tyrosine kinase, an enzyme that is responsible for cell proliferation or growth and survival. So ibrutinib and acalabrutinib have been approved, and they have um, rapidly moved into standard sort of uh, treatment for people with previously treated mental cell lymphoma. One of the questions that arises anytime we have an anti-cancer drug that works very well in people with previously treated lymphoma is, uh, can we use it earlier and get even better results? Uh, and that is exactly what uh, many of us have uh, tried to do at Cornell. We've been working with lenalidomide instead of chemotherapy in the frontline setting. And uh, at MD Anderson, they've been working with ibrutinib and rituximab instead of chemotherapy in the frontline setting. And this uh, summer uh, in Switzerland, they presented the results of two uh, single-center trials. Each one had about 50 patients. In one trial, uh, patients who were over age 65 received a combination of ibrutinib plus rituximab. In uh, patients under age 65, patients received up to one year of the combination of ibrutinib plus rituximab, followed by a short course of uh, intensive chemotherapy. And in both of those trials, they showed that uh, results were significantly uh, improved compared to what we might see uh, using ibrutinib in people with previously treated mantle cell lymphoma. Relatively speaking, these trials are um, uh, small, and I think it's too early to adopt them routinely outside of a clinical trial setting. That said, some people with um, mantle cell lymphoma may not be candidates for chemotherapy either um, due to their uh, age or other medical conditions. And under those circumstances, it's helpful to know that these treatments can work uh, very well. Additionally, one thing that we've been learning over the past five years is that some people with mantle cell lymphoma have genetic risk factors that um, put them at high risk for failure of chemotherapy. And knowing that these drugs now have a high rate of activity generally in mental cell lymphoma provides us with a rationale to study a non-chemotherapy approach in people that we uh, feel where, uh, where we feel chemotherapy is unlikely to be helpful. And so I'm confident that we will see uh, more research with these regimens going forward. Uh, additionally, we saw a clinical trial, uh, preliminary results from a clinical trial looking at these CAR T cells, these genetically engineered immune system cells in people with mental cell lymphoma. A very small number of people, but they do appear to be active in people uh, who have had a brutinib and have relapsed. Uh, so this is exciting, and I think we will see that moving forward in the future. Lastly, I'll just talk quickly about uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, one of the most common leukemias in the world. We saw two uh, phase three trials uh, presented this summer. The first is the CLL12 trial, which was a comparison of ibrutinib versus observation or no therapy in people with chronic lymphocytic leukemia who do not uh, typically require therapy. So most people with CLL at the time of diagnosis do not require therapy. We have historically observed them. Uh, that was uh, largely because the therapies that we had available, namely chemotherapy, didn't appear to improve outcomes compared to uh, observation at the time of diagnosis. Many people will uh, subsequently go on to need treatment, although not everybody does. With the approval of ibrutinib, um, largely replacing chemotherapy in the frontline setting, one of the questions was, um, should we use it earlier? 
And so this trial compared that. And indeed, people receiving ibrutinib instead of observation tend to have a longer time before the uh, lymphoma starts to uh, grow again or leukemia starts to grow again. But there does not appear to be any difference in terms of longevity, largely because these people have a, a normal longevity or overall survival anyways. And so at this point, I think for the most part, people with uh, early stage chronic lymphocytic leukemia who don't otherwise need treatment probably should not be receiving uh, ibrutinib. The last trial uh, that I'll talk about is the CLL14 trial, which was a randomized phase three trial comparing chemotherapy to another approved uh, CLL drug called venetoclax. Venetoclax is an oral um, drug that's approved for CLL. It inhibits an enzyme called BCL2, which is responsible for survival of CLL cells. the exciting thing about the CLL14 trial was that instead of giving these oral anti-cancer drugs indefinitely, their goal was to see what would happen if we gave it for only 12 months, which is uh, an attractive concept to most people with CLL. And indeed, 12 months of uh, venetoclax um, appeared to improve mm-hmm. outcomes significantly when compared to chemotherapy and chlorambucil. Um both in terms of time to progression as well as in terms of eradication of lymphoma uh, as measured by minimal residual disease. And uh, as a result, I think that in the future, we may see an increased number of people being treated with time-limited, i.e. one year of therapy as opposed to indefinite therapy. So that's it for me. A lot of exciting developments, uh, too many to cover in a short period of time. Um, but definitely some excitement, and we will continue to see excitement in the future. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was really very excellent and really exciting, and also interesting to hear that um, uh, I know for a topic that it comes up a great deal in our programs, the CAR T trials, that indeed the older persons are able to um, benefit from those trials as well. And so that's really excellent to hear as well. So thank you. Excellent. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow is going to be addressing updates from ASCO 2019 on leukemia. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, what a great company to be in, all of my colleagues on the call and all of you today. So um, in the interest of time and given the relative contributions um, that leukemia has at the ASPA meeting, um, I'll keep my remarks a little bit shorter today, but um, my topic was to cover advances in leukemia, and of course, there's many different forms of leukemia, and I'm going to focus mainly today on AML and CML. Um, First thing I'd like to say is that, um, boy, what a fantastic revolution we've seen in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. Um, If you weren't aware, in the last two years, there have been eight FDA approvals for drugs in AML. Um, This was an area where new drugs and new therapies and FDA approvals were essentially absent for a very long period of time or very sporadic. Um, We were continuing to use a standard regimen of therapy for a good number of patients that had been established many decades ago. I'm going to run through the list of medications, and again, these were not all covered at the ASCO meeting, but I think they're important for people to know about, a little bit about how they work, and then I will cover some of the trials as well. So, But in 2017, uh, we saw FDA approval of um, one of the uh, first targeted drugs um, against the the, something called the FLT3 
um, kinase or tyrosine kinase, and that drug's um, name is Midastorin or Ridapt. That was a, an important trial combining chemotherapy we typically use with this targeted drug showing that um, Ridapt or Midastorin targeting this um, abnormal enzyme which activates leukemia tends to make it be more proliferative and cause the blood counts to be higher in AML to improve outcomes for patients with AML. And that was really a breakthrough. That being said, that was just the first. Um, another um, important breakthrough was the recognition of other relevant targets in AML, such as an enzyme called isocitrate dehydrogenase, or IDH. And there are actually two medications approved now uh, targeting this um, enzyme, which can be abnormally activated and lead to um, AML um, genesis in patients. And the first drug was called IDHIFA, or enacitinib. And this targets a form of IDH called IDH2, which um, when present in leukemia cells, um, again, is a relevant target and simply inhibiting this um, overactive enzyme um, became a relevant monotherapy or single therapy for patients with AML in whom other chemotherapy agents might be too risky or in whom um, other chemotherapy regimens hadn't worked. We went back to the drawing board, or not me, but um, the field went back to the drawing board and, and looked at the regimen we used in AML called 7 plus 3, which is a combination of a drug, cytarabine, and a, and a, a drug called an anthracycline, um, and packaged it more smartly into uh, something called liposomes, and a drug called Vixios, or CPX351, was also approved in 2017. What that does is deliver the right combination of two drugs which have been studied in AML and have been vital to success over the years, but get, get them, um, again, more smartly to the leukemia source, to the bone marrow, probably with lower toxicity. And this um, drug uh, came through an approval for patients who had secondary AML, perhaps leukemia that had evolved from a previous myelodysplasia or uh, from previous chemotherapy, and really, again, um, moved the needle and improved outcomes um, with a better tolerability profile and a, and a, and a very good re remission rate. So another advance, using the drugs we had at hand, but just making them smarter. Another old drug which had been um, around and, and had um, had some question was um, sort of uh, revived, and that's Milotarg, which is an antibody against something on leukemia cells called CD33. This is a drug generally used with chemotherapy, and um, again, um, is, a, is a newer um, modality of therapy, a targeted antibody against a, a surface marker on AML cells to help increase the chances of, of chemotherapy effect or uh, immune system effect, and again, adds benefit to treatment of AML. That was just 2017. In 2018, we've had four more approvals. We had the second IDH inhibitor drug approved, and the, the, this drug goes by the name of um, Tibsovo or Ivacitinib, and this is targeting the IDH1 uh, enzyme. So IDH1 and 2 are isoforms of the same enzyme. Again, uh, actually a pretty basic enzyme in cells that's related to energy uh, and metabolism that can be altered and, and be part of the leukemia pathway that if we simply disarm that or block that overactive enzyme can be relevant as a monotherapy. Um, and I'll get to um, a, um, a little bit more information about that later. But this, this was another... Um, breakthrough of, of a, uh, and related to the first breakthrough with IDH2. We also saw the first um, uh, approval of a drug inhibiting something called the hedgehog pathway, which don't, don't worry, no animals were harmed in the, in the uh, testing of this drug, but the hedgehog pathway is an important cellular pathway that's actually part of some of the key uh, early development uh, in, in the utero in what we call embryogenesis, so in the key formation of, of, of organisms and, and including humans and animals. But um, 
an abnormal form of, of the hedgehog um, pathway enzymes can persist and cause, for example, leukemia stem cells to persist or, or leukemia, leukemic stem cells to arise and persist. And a drug called Dorismo or Glastigib was also approved um, uh, for patients with um, uh, AML and, and was tested um, and shown to be combining uh, well with a chemotherapy drug called Aracy. And much like um, a next drug I'm going to mention, uh, Venetoclax, um, adds a targeted uh, boost to some of the lower-intensity chemotherapy regimens we have and really offered another targeted pathway to block. There was another FLT3 inhibitor. I mentioned Rydapt, amidostorin. It was the first drug in 2017. In 2018, we saw um, um, Oxtapa or um approved um, for AML as well as the second FLT3 inhibitor, which again, seems to be superior to salvage chemotherapy or second chemotherapy. If someone has AML that's resistant or not responding to chemotherapy, this uh, oral targeted drug against FLT3 gilteritinib can offer superior outcomes, better response, and better survival compared to um, harsher chemotherapy. So again, a real breakthrough. Probably the biggest story of, of the last two years is a drug called Venetoclax or Ven Venclexa. This was mentioned by a few of my colleagues in other settings. So good news is we don't tend to be um, silos, and we, we tend to borrow other agents from other disease areas and see if they're um, relevant. And boy, um, Ven Venclexa um, really has um, added a lot to the AML therapy options. Um, in combination with drugs we currently use in the higher-risk AML setting, um, folks that may suffer more from chemotherapy side effects, drugs called hypomethylating agents, Ven venetoclax plus hypomethylating agents or venetoclax plus a lower dose of a drug called Aracy can put patients in a remission upwards of three-quarters of the time, 70-plus percent, which was a, a tremendous breakthrough. And, and the studies continue with um, uh, venetoclax or venetoclax, and that drug was approved in 2018 to be combined with um, chemotherapy um, agents I mentioned. So we've really seen a huge advance in AML. I just want to cover all the medications there during this call just so everyone was up to speed. Let me, in the next few minutes, just cover a few of the studies that were done at ASCO related to AML. Just a, um, <clears throat> a few things to mention. There, um, what's always nice to see is when we're able to extend the uh, wealth of, of newer drugs into different populations like pediatrics. And at, at ASCO 2019, we saw in AML um, the study of this real blockbuster um, breakthrough with venetoclax extended to the pediatric population. So a study with venetoclax with um, chemotherapy, would, again, we generally use Aracy and idorubicin. Um, in, in children with, uh, again, leukemia that was either not responding to chemotherapy or, or had returned after chemotherapy was, um, it was safe, didn't add much in the way of side effects. The side effects that were seen were much the same as it would be expected for the general chemotherapy and really boosted response rates with putting more children into remission or response than probably the chemotherapy alone. So that preliminary data shows us safety, and I think we now will hopefully see that also move forward in the pediatric population, much like other leukemia projects tend to first be tested in adults and then move back into the pediatrics um, for safety reasons. The second trial mentioned in AML um, is related to these FLT3 drugs. I mean, I mentioned Rydapt and, and Oxpata or gilteritinib and mitostorin. So there was a study at ASCO looking at when the genetics of AML or the molecular uh, changes in AML are more complicated and we're using a single target, one might wonder, you know, is it, is it an Achilles heel problem and we're only trying to aim at one thing? What if it's a complicated um, molecular landscape? And a nice study at ASCO showed that if you look at patients who have a FLT3 mutation, 
and an AML that needs better treatment, it didn't matter whether they had additional mutations. And uh, some of the mutations looked at were NPM1, um, something called DNMT3A, and um, WT1. These are mutations that can be pretty challenging in AML. So when AML has these additional mutations, one might think that these targeted drugs might not work as well, and indeed that wasn't the case. That was very encouraging, showing us the power of some of these newer targeted drugs. I'm going to close with my favorite disease, which is CML, and the one I treat the most with. And there wasn't um, a, um, a lot of information, but there were some really interesting um, areas that continue to be explored. And one was, can we do better than um, Gleevec as our primary treatment? And there was actually a drug that came out of China called flumantinib. So this is a drug which is probably similar structurally and, and biochemically to Gleevec, but maybe offers a better side effect profile, different side effect profile, and potential better efficacy. And in a randomized trial, which is rare to see nowadays, um, for people given Gleevec standard doses, 400 milligrams, versus this new drug, flumantinib, at a higher dose of 600 milligrams, they saw actually improved response rates, better rates of molecular emissions as early as 3, and then at 6 and 12 months, um, uh, flumantinib better than, than amantinib. Um, better deeper remissions at 12 months, and, and a different scientific profile, less in the way of eye puffiness and swelling, um, less um, uh, reduction in blood counts, although a little bit more diarrhea. So I think more information is needed. But bottom line there is we're seeing, a, a, in a global sense, um, drugs for uh, CML being developed in different parts of the world, in, in Russia, China, India, um, which are quite promising. And then probably the most encouraging story is people with CML being able to stop their therapy. And there was an update on a trial called the Anestop trial, which looked at people who were started with Gleevec but then switched to a second drug um, to Cigna in order to boost their response rates and get them into deep remission, follow them, make sure they stayed in a deep remission, and then see if they could stop therapy. This is trying to be more inclusive when it comes to the, the very um, excellent story of CML and, and the possibility of what's called treatment-free remission. And with an update that's almost four years now long, um, we're showing that this study was able to show that the um, likelihood of staying in deep remission uh, stays around 50%. That's very rare. There's only, it was only a single patient that lost their response later on, and that 95% or more patients who didn't hold their remissions and needed to be retreated regained their deep molecular remissions. And, you know, in, in the clinics, talking to my patients, that's one of the most important questions is if I were to do this and to think about stopping treatment and be watched, what would happen if I needed to be retreated? Would I get back to where I started? And that seems to be the case. So, again, in the interest of time, I'm just focused on CML and AML. And um, I just want to say it's been an exciting year for all leukemias, particularly AML. And to stay tuned because the advances keep coming and targeted therapy really is hitting its heyday. And thank you for your attention. I'll turn it back to Carolyn. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was really outstanding and really so much energy and real excitement, uh, certainly about AML and CML as well. And just uh, thank you for that wonderful presentation. Just um, extraordinary. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Ruben Mesa. Dr. Mesa is Director of Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson, Mays Family Foundation, Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine. And Dr. Messer is going to be presenting on updates from ASCO 2019 on myeloproliferative neoplasms. And now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Messer. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messer, and really a pleasure to be here today to provide some of the key updates regarding the myeloproliferative neoplasms at the 2019 ASCO meeting that I both attended and presented several of these updates in myeloproliferative neoplasms, as well as many of the evolving 
issues of discussion with these diseases. So first, when I say myeloproliferative neoplasms, I'm referring to essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, myelofibrosis, and today we'll also be mentioning a related disease of chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. So first, let's start with updates in essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera. And the most uh, interesting thing which is evolving regarding new therapies is the utilization of a long-acting interferon that is called the ropegylated interferon alpha-2b. This medicine has recently gotten approved in Europe for the treatment of high-risk polycythemia vera uh, when that drug was compared against hydroxyurea in high-risk patients with polycythemia vera who had been previously untreated and were high risk. And in studies done in Europe, they demonstrated that that drug was superior to hydroxyurea for patients with polycythemia vera, particularly if treated for a longer period of time. Better control of the number of phlebotomies, control of the blood counts, and we hope a longer-term impact on trying to delay progression in the disease. I presented, along with my co-investigators, a trial-in-progress abstract at ASCO 2019 looking at what a ropegylated trial for patients with essential thrombocythemia, what such a trial that is planned would look like, uh, and how that would be evaluated. Uh, in the proposed phase three study, patients who have failed hydroxyurea are randomized between ropegylated interferon alpha-2b versus anagrelide with goals of better control of counts, improvement in symptoms, hopefully avoiding risk of thrombosis or bleeding, and longer term, hopefully having a deeper impact in terms of therapy of the disease. These are important updates in that interferons have long been uh, a drug of very significant interest for patients with MPNs, uh, and that might have a deeper impact against the underlying disease and the clone involved. So we await the results uh, of the ET study with great interest, excited about the approval in Europe for polycythemia vera, and efforts are being made underway to uh, potentially have that drug become available in the United States for polycythemia vera to reflect the European approval. Next, I'll shift gears and speak regarding myelofibrosis and a drug that may well become approved in the very near future, which is called fedratinib. Fedratinib is a JAK2 inhibitor. We currently have ruxolitinib as an approved JAK2 inhibitor for patients with myelofibrosis as frontline therapy and as second-line therapy for patients with polycythemia vera. Fedratinib was presented at ASCO 2019 in a second-line study uh, that uh, was a reanalysis of the Jakarta 2 study. In this study, it had been previously reported that it was utilized in patients that had previously failed ruxolitinib. However, that study from the past uh, had certain eligibility criteria, which uh, over time we have learned uh, might have ideally been narrowed as the issue of ruxolitinib resistance has been much better defined. 
So in that prior study that had concluded early because of a clinical hold that occurred with that agent, uh, patients were reassessed with a stricter definition of uh, relapsed or refractory status, and then uh, we made accommodations for the impact that the clinical hold had had for individuals dropping out of the therapy on that basis. So with a more stringent uh, analysis of criteria for resistance or response, we were able to identify a clear over 30% response rate for individuals who are either resistant or refractory to ruxolitinib with response from fedradinib. Additionally, we found a safety profile consistent with the prior reports of fedradinib. Fedradinib had been on track for an FDA approval several years ago, and there had been uh, in the conduct of the phase three study, uh, about eight individuals out of 900 that were found to have a neurologic toxicity that at that point was concerned for Wernicke's encephalopathy. There was a subsequent analysis done last year, which my colleagues and I had presented uh, at, at, at ASH that had identified that only one of those eight individuals likely had Wernicke's encephalopathy, uh, and likely that Wernicke's encephalopathy was present when that individual had begun the therapy. So subsequently, we found that the other cases, when scrutinized by uh, independent neurologists, felt that there was some sort of neurologic event, uh, but that it was not clear that it was Wernicke's encephalopathy. So on the basis of that, the FDA removed the clinical hold of, uh, of fedradinib, and it is proceeding with further uh, testing. In addition, the current data from the prior Jakarta 1 and Jakarta 2 studies are being assessed, uh, and there's a potential that there may be an FDA approval, which is forthcoming based on the prior data. Now, this issue still remains, is there a very low risk of either Wernicke's encephalopathy or some sort of neurologic event. To address that, there was a second study presented at ASCO, which is a trial in progress regarding the FREEDOM study. This is a phase 3B efficacy study, a single arm, multi-center, uh, looking at the efficacy of, ruxil of fedradinib in individuals that clearly had failed ruxolidinib with close monitoring for uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy, as well as uh, active monitoring uh, and thiamine replacement. So trying to uh, both understand that prior toxicity from the past, hopefully mitigate against that. The next drug and abstract that I would highlight is regarding the BET inhibitor, or bromodomain and extraterminal protein inhibitor, alone or with ruxolitinib in patients with myelofibrosis. This agent from Constellation Pharmaceuticals uh, is a drug of interest because bed inhibition may regulate a variety of important drivers of marrow fibrosis, including TGF-beta, NF-kappa-B, and others. Uh, Dr. Hoffman and colleagues uh, presented this study at uh, ASCO, 
uh, and demonstrated in this early study that the compound, the CPI0610, was well tolerated uh, and seemed to be effective in terms of aiding individuals that had residual uh, splenomegaly symptoms, etc., who had been on ruxolitinib. Uh, in addition, it showed individuals becoming transfusion independent who had previously been dependent on uh, transfusions. So this is part of an ongoing series of studies with this compound, but exciting in that it's a different mechanism of action and may have a role to play either a single agent or in combination with ruxolitinib. Next, I would highlight uh, a drug for chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. This is an MPN and myelodysplastic syndrome overlap syndrome. Uh, and these individuals share many features with patients with myelofibrosis and very much are a cousin uh, to this disease. Uh, and therapies that are active for one group of individuals may be beneficial for the other. In this particular trial, this is of the drug SL401, and this was for individuals with relapse or refractory chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. This agent has recently become uh, approved as a therapy for a rare parallel hematologic disorder that is known as BPDCN, which is a uh, plasma cell disorder. The agent is a CD123 targeted therapy that we believe is active against the cells involved with the disease. In this particular study, they treated individuals, 20 patients with CMML, who had, for the most part, previously had the standard of care therapy, which were the drugs of azacitidine or docitabine. Uh, With this trial, they showed uh, effectiveness in helping to shrink the spleen size, helping to improve bone marrow features, uh, and potentially helping to improve the symptoms that individuals uh, face with the disease. So this opens up a different avenue of therapy against a difficult disease, Uh, And subsequent trials are planned with utilizing this therapy potentially for individuals with myelofibrosis. So I hope I leave you with a sense of a tremendous activity, many things ongoing for better therapies with ET, P-Vera, myelofibrosis, and related diseases like chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. We look forward to further advancements uh, through this uh, uh, upcoming year and exciting things as we approach uh, the ASH meeting in December of 2019. And with that, I will hand it back to Dr. Messer. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Messer. That was really outstanding and a wonderful, comprehensive presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is a clinical professor of medicine, Morris, U.S. US UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. Um, and Dr. Daniels um, is going to be addressing updates from ASCO 2019 on melanoma, but he's also going to provide a bit of a wrap-up of, of today's this part two of, of his two-part series on updates, highlights of ASCO, with common themes and promising research presented at ASCO. So it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. 
Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you for everybody for participating in the call today. And um, I will refer people back to just before ASCO, we gave um, one of these calls, and they're all podcasts for you. And I gave it a talk briefly outlining melanoma and standard of care, looking at the genomics and how we tailor therapies. And so I'm not going to go back over uh, that, only to say that, as we know, melanoma is on the rise. It's uh, a skin cancer that uh, has that tendency to spread and as such has caught our attention in the clinic and research areas and um, has been fortunately a site of um, active active research that has led to some, some major changes in how we deliver care for melanoma. And all that happens through clinical trials and academic research and patient participation. Um, it's a lot of work, which um, the speakers have uh, outline some of the ongoing areas in, in their fields. So for melanoma at ASCO, um, while it wasn't a particular new standard of care um, year for melanoma, we did um, get a lot of information on how to refine therapies, tailor treatments, and some of those themes I'll come back to uh, when I wrap up at the end. And so I'm going to talk about um, some neoadjuvant, uh, which has been presented in some other tumor type sets that's giving treatment before um, a surgery, uh, adjuvant care, which is giving treatment after a surgery or another definitive therapy, and then some biomarkers, um, updates, and uh, finally, um, I'm going to finish up with some cellular therapy um, excitement um, that uh, has been pioneered at the NCI, and I'll just highlight some of that. So, as with the other cancers been outlined, um, it's all about uh, genomics and understanding uh, what makes the tumor tick. And if we know that, we can tailor our treatments. However, genomics is not everything. And we know that a cancer with a particular DNA mutation in one patient um, may act differently in a, a, just a different patient or at a different site in, in the patient. And so it's, it's very complicated. And one interesting approach uh, that that people are starting to take is using the patient um, before surgery to try to tailor the treatments. And so this is the neoadjuvant approach. Um, neoadjuvant treatments in melanoma include either targeted therapies. For example, they're going after the BRAF gene uh, mutation and that pathway that activates tumor growth, or the immune therapies and the checkpoint inhibitors that, that you've heard some of that about uh, earlier in the call. And so um, there was data presented from an international neoadjuvant melanoma consortium um, that is a group of a bunch of cancer centers. And they looked back at several, uh, six or seven clinical trials that have been done recently looking at exposing patients that need a surgery, but exposing them to uh, treatments before the surgery and then looking at the outcomes. And this gives a window into the biology of the tumor. So if we expose the, the cancer to, say, a targeted therapy for a month or two or uh, an immune therapy, and we see a good response, does that help predict outcomes for that patient? Or does it give us a clue that we need to change to something else? And so this group um, put out uh, parameters for us all to think about as far as endpoints, and then looked at uh, the data for if a patient had a great response to treatment before surgery, had the surgery, and then the outcomes afterwards, 
were, were very encouraging for those patients where we could better match uh, the response to the drug. Um, but uh, the challenge was for those patients that didn't get a good response to treatment, that then tells us to focus in on other pathways that may be important. So this concept of neoadjuvant therapy, um, while not standard of care, I think is going to give us a lot of insights and uh, may be uh, standard of care in the near future. So on to adjuvant therapy. In uh, melanoma, we have several, uh, either the BRAF drugs I mentioned or the PD-1 inhibitors. But not too long ago, another drug, Yervoy or ipilimumab, um, was considered a standard treatment. That's been uh, dropped to a lower tier uh, because of toxicity concerns. And um, the ECOG um, uh, group, um, which is a cooperative group, had done years ago a, a trial designed to see if we could get away with lowering the dose of uh, Yervoy or ipilimumab and still maintain a good adjuvant effect for patients. And so trying to bring the idea of another drug back into the adjuvant uh, option uh, toolkit. And so the study looked at two different doses of uh, ipilimumab or Yervoy compared to, at the time, standard of treatment, which was interferon. And they succeeded in showing uh, lower rates of toxicity. And um, while not specifically designed uh, for the endpoints showed overall survival and relapse-free survival was the same between the low, uh, more tolerable dose of uh, Yervoy and the higher uh, dose of Yervoy. So it just gives us potentially another option when talking to patients about what uh, adjuvant treatment options we can consider. When we're giving these all these therapies to patients, we have to be mindful that there's toxicities. And so um, currently, um, when we give a, a drug, we're often going off of, well, this matches best to the stage and clinical risk situation. But it would be um, really good if we could better match it to characteristics that are specific to that patient and the tumor. And so a group down in Australia um, took a very systematic approach at a comprehensive molecular profiling in melanoma. And you've heard some of this before. There's genomics, sequencing of the tumor. Uh, there's looking at the microenvironment, so what cells are there and, and who's talking to whom, um, as well as patient-specific factors. And so over the uh, last several years, we've accumulated these tantalizing bits. Well, maybe PDL1 is important, maybe tumor mutation burden is important, maybe, and all these maybes because none, none of these by themselves seem to be predictive. So the uh, group took all of them and applied it to a data set to try to pick apart if you have a good responder and a not good responder patient, is there a way of combining some of these tools to predict that ahead of time? And they went through a, a variety of um, of possible uh, biomarkers and came out with a predictive algorithm that took into account the number of mutations that were there in the tumor as well as um, the type of immune response that was ongoing within the tumor and could uh, reasonably predict who would respond to a particular therapy. Unfortunately, reasonably was not 100%, um, meaning that I think we still need more information to refine these predictive models, but it just continues to point the way towards trying to personalize 
these therapies a little bit better to both improve the response rates, but also minimize exposures to patients who may not uh, respond. I'm going to highlight, uh, like I said, some cellular therapy. Now, Dr. Rosenberg, uh, for more than three decades, has been um, leading his group um, to develop cells, T cells particularly, that are generated from a patient, given back to the patient to kill the cancer. And this is now um, um, spearheaded um, in other tumor types, as well as variations on this theme using CAR T cells and stuff. But at the NCI, um, they will uh, have a patient come, resect a tumor, and be able to isolate those immune cells that recognize that tumor, give them back to the patient, and show a percentage of patients that have durable, complete responses with this therapy. Unfortunately, it's not everybody, so room for improvement, um, as is the theme for all this. And if we're talking about T cells, we should expect that a T cell is recognizing a specific, very specific, it's about, a, it's about as personalized as you can get, a very specific target on the tumor. And so the NCIs develop technology to use um, the genome information from the tumor to interrogate the cells that they're isolating to figure out what mutations that they're looking at and then see which ones might have the best response back to the patient. So it's taking a very broad response, able to tease out these neoantigen-specific T cells, enrich for them, and give them back. And they're now applying this not only to melanoma, but across the board at uh, multiple different tumor types. One daunting aspect that came out of this work is that um, pretty much uh, there's a truth uh, to saying no two patients are alike meaning that when they looked at the mutations that are recognized by the tumors in, the, in each particular patient, that there was um, remarkably uh, high difference between every single patient. And so you get to this point where you're starting to think about these cell therapies as almost being personalized for each particular patient. But as the technology advances, I think we're going to get to that point where we can look at the mutations in the tumor, personalize it back to uh, the patient, uh, select out either through vaccines or cell therapy or any of these technologies, and then apply a very specific personalized um, treatment for the patients. Lastly, I'll just, um, because uh, I think it's very important just to get out there, um, talk about um, advances in managing brain uh, disease. So melanoma, unfortunately, has a high propensity to send uh, tumor deposits to the brain. And this is a, a real challenge in managing patients because, again, when we're doing immune therapies, well, one danger is that we get swelling at the site of the tumor, and it's not um, there's not a big window of safety when we swell a small tumor in the brain because of the confined space and the risk for bleeding. Um, but over the last uh, couple of years, um, people have bravely stepped forward in the clinical trials and tried these immune therapies in patients with brain metastases and shown that if you have um, a limited number of brain metastases, small uh, lesions, less than a centimeter, and don't need steroids, that the response to immune therapies is just as good as if uh, one did not have brain metastases, meaning that um, we still see a good number, more than half the patients responding and doing well over time with immune therapies with brain metastases or without. 
And this opens the door or possibility to not needing uh, radiation in certain uh, situations and not being so automatic. Um, the data at ASCO was an update on this cohort as well as a presentation for those patients with symptomatic brain metastases. I'll just say that this is a much more challenging group. Um, they sometimes need steroids, which uh, work against our immune therapies, but they were able to show that in some patients um, in specialized centers that these patients can also be managed with uh, immune therapies. And so, you know, I'll say in melanoma, to wrap up, I'm not sure we got um, that thing that changed practice, but practice has changed so much in melanoma over the last 10 years. Um, but we are getting um, really insights into what's driving a particular tumor and how we can use those characteristics to um, better refine our, our treatment options. So with that, I'll, I'll finish melanoma and pause for two seconds and just uh, now go into you know, what Dr. Messner was alluding to. How do you, how do you tie this all together? How we tie it all together is uh, through clinical trials and um, pushing pushing things forward. Um, everybody on this phone call um, that, that presented is is really uh, drank the Kool-Aid and uh, knows that this is the path forward. Um, it's a difficult path. It takes a lot of work and um, trying to trying to do things to um, to get rid of cancer. Um, in our lifetime is really kind of all our goals. And um, I think, you know, ASCO every year just continues to raise that bar of excitement. And um, through either neoadjuvant approaches that Dr. Chris touched upon, Dr. Benson and colorectal cancer, where we're using um, short exposures of medications to really um, interrogate a person's cancer and their relationship to the cancer, or as Dr. O'Reilly was alluding to in pancreatic cancer, understanding the genomics that's driving um, the BRCA1 and 2, which we you know, uh, used to think, oh, well, breast cancer-related genes. Um, well, they're also pancreatic-related genes. And um, as we've seen in the leukemias and lymphomas, borrowing from other disease states and olaparib um, showing activity in pancreatic cancer based on genomics that have been worked out in other tumors is, is really um, exciting to see this crosstalk that's happening between all the tumor types as we learn better targeting uh, for these pathways, um, rational, rational drugs, as well as the immune therapies coming in. So with that, you know, I'll just say that um, we are making tremendous progress. Um, of course, we haven't uh, cured cancer yet. Um, but it's really an exciting time to be involved in medicine and all the things that uh, are going forward. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to uh, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Daniels. You really, um, this is a yeoman's part that you said you actually tied it all together, and really uh, amazing what you said, actually, in terms of just the um, the fact that it is that the clinical trials are important, and of course, this crosstalk, a crosstalk across all tumor types, is very important. Well, I just want to conclude by just saying I want to thank you all for being on the call today. I do want to remind you that, of course, um, you are. Um, this was a really presentation from the ASCO meeting, but we recognize that many of you may have other issues that concern to you. And so I do want to go over with you some of the services that Cancer Care can offer to you. Um, and those services are basically our free um, practical and financial assistance programs that we have. 
Um, and um, those are available to you for any of you who are dealing with cancer right now, which I'm assuming many of you are, that you are your families or caregivers or friends, um, that you may want to have someone to talk to about your concerns. And you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And you can then, of course, let our social workers know, let them know that this information you can ask for help in that way as well. But most importantly, we don't want any one of you to leave the call today thinking that you are alone. You're now part of a community of support. We're here to help you. And if we don't have the services, we definitely can link you to other places that do have the services. Um, and of course, we don't also want to sidestep your healthcare team. They ask that your healthcare team can be a tremendous resource to you around many of the issues that you may be confronting. So, and sometimes talking to one of our staffs helps you to go back to your healthcare team and really ask those questions. We hope that you've learned a lot today. Um, this is part two, and it was a part one as well. We hope that you've learned very a lot from these two-part series, and that we look forward to you participating in other programs as well. I want to thank you all for participating today, and wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.